Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to be talking about the shopping cart killer. The least nefarious serial killer name I've ever heard. Right? I was like, he sounds real stupid, but this case is actually pretty sad. It's still developing, so we'll be covering this case to an extent that the details are out there, and then we'll be updating it in our True Crime Digest. Yeah, and I I think this is a very interesting case because I feel like often when you hear about a slew of murders, especially like a new serial killer, possible serial killer, right? Just no convictions here. But you hear what they've done. And that is something that is missing from this story is that I feel like law enforcement has been really tight lipped about what exactly happened to these women. Yeah. And in a way, I'm like not used to it. Yeah. Because we've been so in the know with what? Lori Vallow and Taryn Summers and Linda Stolfoots. When I think of like the cases that we've been covering month after month, like even Jelani Day, like we have painful amounts of detail. So it's interesting when it's really withheld, especially as we continue. There's going to be parts where you're going to go like, what happened there? Because clearly this isn't just a body. What I've seen is law enforcement describing what happened to these women before their death is traumatic. Yeah, and that's it. And horrific. And that's it. Yeah, nothing else. And then also something that I found sad and interesting is that some of the women that we'll be talking about, all we know is they disappeared. We don't know anything about their day before they disappeared. We don't know any other details. It's just they disappeared. They were found. That's it. Yeah. I even went and looked for some of their like social media accounts to like see if I could get a sense for who they were. And I could find some of them. But, you know, like a lot of people, people have things private. So it's like you can see some pictures, but you can't get a sense for a three dimensional picture of who this person was. And no one's talking about it. And that's incredibly sad. I feel like what we're hearing this moniker right over and over and over again, because it sounds entertaining and I get it. But, you know, as I was reading, right, I'm looking at these women's names and it's the first time I've seen them. It's the first time I've heard them. But I've heard chatter about there's a shopping cart killer for the past few months, but I wasn't hearing their names. And that's the most important thing is the people, not the killers. Agreed. So Stephanie Harrison's family last heard from her on August 19th of 2021. And she was 48 years old. According to her sister, Joey Harrison, she was visiting D.C. so that she could go sightseeing. When Joey was talking about Stephanie, she said, I think about the life she lived. She was beautiful, vibrant. Stephanie's daughter looked at her bank account after she had been missing and saw that she had stayed at a motel in Virginia called The Moon Inn. Later, police would confirm via digital evidence that she was there at the same time as the suspected killer, Anthony Robinson. Tuck the name of that motel in your head. So another woman I want to tell you about is Sonia Champ. And on September 7th of 2021, the remains of Sonia Champ were found in D.C. Her body was found covered in a blanket just a few blocks from Union Station. And the only information that I can find on Sonia is the way that her mother described her 
and she described her as a sweet person who often stayed to herself, but loved being around family and helping others. That makes me really sad that just not a lot on her. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, and we'll get to it in a little bit, her being brought into this investigation while she was one of the first people who went missing is relatively new. And so in a lot of articles, they don't even talk about who she is. They just say fifth woman. Yeah. And then describe where she died, which I'm like, the most basic thing that you should be talking about with a victim is their name. Well, and what I noticed when I was going through any of the more recent articles, and by recent, this is already recent enough, but within the last month or two. Yeah. Is every single one just has that same snippet from her mom. Yeah. So, unfortunately, on September 20th, 2021, 29-year-old Cheyenne Brown was last seen at the Huntington Metro stop in Virginia. Cheyenne had traveled there from D.C. And just as a note, you're going to hear us go in and out of D.C. We're going to say Virginia, D.C., and go back and forth. But just the way the metro is set up, like, it does go in and out. And it makes sense. A lot of people who work in D.C. live in Virginia and travel in on the metro. Makes sense. Similarly, like there's people in Baltimore who will travel to D.C. It's kind of a trek, but people in Maryland will also commute into D.C. Makes sense. So what we know about Cheyenne is that she was five months pregnant and had a young son. Her family, when reporting her missing, said that she had a distinct tattoo. When describing Cheyenne, her mother, Nicandra Brown, said that Cheyenne had a huge heart and she was trusting and thought of everyone as her friend. What breaks my heart is as we continue, what we're hearing over and over from family members is how kind and sociable these women were. Right. Yeah, they were sweet and they were open. I mean, I would hope that if if I were to pass, my family would be saying nice things about me and not being like, sometimes she was just a little bit much, right? But I feel like we're hearing like that these women were kind and trusting and it makes me feel like someone took advantage of those traits in them. Right. And almost was looking for those traits. Exactly. So the next woman is Eileen Elizabeth Redmond, who went by Beth, and she was last seen in downtown Harrisburg, Virginia on October 24th. After not showing up at her apartment or work, she was reported missing. Her family and friends thought it wasn't like her to miss work or to just like not show up at her home. It was very bizarre. She had two daughters and four grandchildren. One of her daughters, Jessica May, said, My mom just had a really good heart. She would do anything for people. She was always acting like she didn't have any friends. But to see all of these people who have reached out, it's like, Mom, you definitely did. You definitely touched a lot of people. And the timing of this, right, is right before the holidays. So Jessica also said, right before the holidays and just knowing that I'll never speak to my mom again. It's just a feeling that I can't even describe. That's so sad. Yeah. Another woman we're going to talk about. Her name was Tonita Smith. She was 39 years old and she went by Nita. She went missing on November 14th and was reported missing on November 19th. She had six children and was from Charlottesville. Nita's niece, Sage Smith, went missing in 2012. And when discussing the disappearance of a loved one, a family friend named Kimberly said, This family's not a stranger to tragedy. Unfortunately, there's the trauma associated with the tragedy of family members being gone in a way that we wouldn't wish on anyone. That's horrible that it would happen. I mean, it's not back to back, but like 2012 isn't all that long ago. And for a family to go through it twice in a lifetime, I can't even imagine. From what I understand, Sage has never been found. 
Right. I couldn't find anything on her. I mean, I saw some things where they suggested that it was somebody who she was close with, but nothing that was really concrete. Yeah. So the missing persons investigations for Anita and Beth led Harrisburg police and Charlottesville police to check a vacant lot on November 23rd of last year. And it was there that they found Nita and Beth in the field. From what I understand, they weren't next to each other, but they were pretty close, like in the same proximity. It really reminds me of Texas Killing Fields here. I know I say that with like, yes, every serial killer lately, but just this like vacant lot. And when we were talking about Calder Road. I think what I'll find a little bit more alarming here is the year it was 2021 when this was happening. I'll get into it in a second on why like I find this very, just very particularly strange. But law enforcement confirmed that the women did not die at the same time. So I'm assuming there was two different times that he went to this vacant lot to take the remains of a woman. I I thought about this with Texas Killing Fields, too. Like, I know they were a little bit different at the times that they were dumped and found. But like, does he walk and he's like, oh, I already left a body here. Let me go over here and leave this one. It's just I don't know why I go to that. Like, what's going through his mind? What is going on in there? If they're close in proximity for law enforcement, then they're definitely close in proximity for the person who's leaving the bodies there. Right. Is he reliving it? Like, oh, this is what I did to her. Look, I did it again. Let me go find another one. Exactly. Well, so after reviewing the surveillance footage and cell phone records, police were able to link both women to Anthony Eugene Robinson. And this is where I find it really interesting because after we researched Texas Killing Field, I then lost all hope in my preconceived notions of like the efficacy of law enforcement at at hunting and tracking down murderers. Yeah. But as we continue, right, like one of the things that we're learning more and more of is that the way in which we assume investigations should go is a little bit driven by all of the, the crime shows that we watch. I blame criminal minds. I mean, criminal minds, all of the CSIs in every city that they're in, SVU, regular law and order, homicide, like we can go on and on and on. And it's hard for me to not look at those shows, which I love dearly, and say, like, is it a little bit of propaganda to get us to believe that the police, like, are doing all of these great things and doing what we actually need them to do? Because it's hard for me to get behind, like, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what we can trust our police to do as a country and that not be a purposeful thing. For sure. Because, like, in my head, oh, okay, a loved one were to go missing, right? Then we'd have police at the door really fast and they'd be out on surveillance and they'd find clues. And then when they got to a stopping point, they would call a whole other team with way more technology to just like step right in and help out. But it's not like that at all. It's maybe they'll help, but probably not. Or in Daniel Robinson's case, if his dad's doing such a good job, you got this. I mean, fuck Buckeye. Let's just I mean it very thoroughly. But did you ever watch the show Bones? I never got into it, but I've seen the show. Okay, so you've seen enough for me to say when that show fucked me up, it fucked me up. Because me thinking like that, like on the average, a body is found and they're going to take it to some lab and somebody's going to be looking at like the dirt on the bottom of the victim's shoes to see like where they were. They're going to like look at the bugs that were near that person's body and figure out like what they ate to see where they were from. That there's some artist who's doing these like beautiful renderings of every single victim. I was out here thinking like that's how the world was working. Yep. Me too. My silly naive self thought that that's how the world was. Yeah. 
Well, we, we wish. <laughs> we wish. We wish. Now, I will say, so far what I've seen of these investigations, I am actually pleasantly surprised about the cross-jurisdictional cooperation, the fact that the FBI has been called in. We'll talk about it later. Right. And that's rare now that we've seen so many. It's rare. And like everyone's playing nice, which feels so bizarre to see. Like I was like, like I kept like squinting being like, where am I going to be annoyed? And I haven't gotten there yet for this, which perhaps that's a perk here. But so continuing on, Anthony Robinson is 35 years old and he doesn't have a criminal history from what I understand on November 23rd which is the same day that both Beth and Nita were found, which I like how quick that is. Yeah. And he was charged with two counts for first degree murder, as well as there was also charges for what he did to the bodies. And they were both filed the next day. Per the online case system, they actually show the dates of the murder offenses and they date them as November 15th and October 24th. So the police department for D.C., which is called the Metropolitan Police Department, reached out to Harrisburg Police on November 30th because they had been investigating the disappearance of Cheyenne. Metro Police had found that Cheyenne had also been talking to Robinson on a dating website called Plenty of Fish. Which, by the way, just generally feels like a sketch site. Back in my day, I was on there and was like, this is the most shady of the ones I'm on. There's some pretty shady ones, yeah. Law enforcement said that he also uses a site or an app called Tagged. I've never heard of Tagged. It sounds awful. I haven't either. They all sound awful. They all sound awful, but just Tagged sounds a little worse for some reason. Yeah. Harrisburg police found that Robinson had contact in and around the area of the Moon Inn on Richmond Highway in Alexandria, Virginia. Metro police then reached out to Fairfax County, Virginia detectives to assist in their search for Cheyenne on December 7th. And just a note, the Moon Inn is in Fairfax County. So Fairfax detectives and the Metro Police Department got a search warrant and determined that Brown and Robinson were at the same place on the night of Cheyenne's disappearance. So police searched near and around the Moon Inn with a cadaver dog from George Mason University, but they didn't find anything. Then on December 15th, they came back after they had gotten a tip saying they should look again. They were searching the area and they saw that there was a shopping cart near the edge of a wooded area. And nearly every article I see about this has a picture of a Target shopping cart in woods. Yeah. I don't know whether that's the cart or whether someone early on had a picture of a cart in woods. Some of the things that I read mentioned a Target cart. So I assume it's Target cart, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that it is. I just think it's interesting that that photo has been circulated so widely especially considering they've been tight-lipped about so many other details. Right. So upon closure inspection, when the officer went over to look at the cart, because it was in a strange place, he realized that there was a plastic container near the cart. And when they opened it up, the officer thought the contents may be human remains. So let's take a break and say he thinks they may be human remains, which means something has happened to these women's bodies. And in not a long period of time, right? Like this isn't years later where we're finding like, a big barrel or something like that. Right. It's a month or two. Yeah. And how big could a plastic container be? It's either big enough for you to have noticed before Uh or it's small enough where it's confusing. It's even a person in there, which horrifying. Yeah. Unsettling. So the medical examiner and an anthropologist from George Mason confirmed the remains were human. 
And that kind of reminded me of Bones again when they had like another scientist from a university come help and look and say like, can we verify that what we found are from a human? And so the container had the remains of two different people. So thinking of this crime scene, police then recalled that there had been a shopping cart in close proximity to where Nita and Beth had been found too. Horrifying. So that's when they're starting to go, okay, maybe shopping carts are a part of how this particular killer works. And this probably isn't very on topic, but the name shopping cart killer, out of all the things that he's done to them, it's how he moved the bodies. That's where everyone went is the shopping cart part. I mean, I also have a hard time believing that that's a unique thing to do because when googling shopping cart and murder i mean like obviously like articles on anthony robinson comes up first but like i saw other articles where two people were transporting a person who was in a rolled up carpet i saw talking about like vehicular things that happened with somebody in a shopping cart like i don't think that that's a unique instance i would imagine it's not but unique enough to be able to do something i guess Yeah, I mean, naming a killer already just like gives them more power in a sense because everyone remembers them and it's easy to talk about them. Yeah. But this one's just so dumb. It sounds so stupid. Yeah, I agree. I mean, at least it's not the shopping buggy, right? Honestly, I'd rather it be more stupid, I guess, right? Yeah. He doesn't get a cool name. He gets the most ridiculous name because he's a ridiculous human being. Yeah. I think that actually, no, I'm going to go ahead and say I think that all serial killers should be named like ridiculous cartoonish monikers just to belittle them. Completely absurd, like the bubblegum killer or like hopscotch Johnny. Like I want them to be ridiculous. I agree. Hokey Pokey John. Like that's what they need to be. I'm going to be referring to him as the shopping buggy killer. Yeah, because he should be ridiculed. Like, not that that's ridiculed, but like, I don't want you to feel like the Zodiac Killer. I mean, that's a kind of a cool name, right? It sounds cool. Yeah. But like, I don't know. Blame Horoscope Killer sounds a lot better. That's true. I like it. I like it. I think they need an insult in their name too. Lame. That's good. Yeah. Like, you're not a superhero. You don't get a cool name. Yeah. So one of the sets of the remains had a distinct tattoo, and Cheyenne's family confirmed it was indeed her tattoo. Additionally, a DNA test confirmed that one of the sets of remains were Cheyenne. Police believe that Robinson was the last person to see Cheyenne alive. Cheyenne's cousin, his name's Jonathan Willis, said he saw Robinson at Cheyenne's home about 10 days before her disappearance, and he made him leave. The next day, he saw Robinson with Cheyenne again, and he made him leave again. I didn't see any reasons, though, why he was making him leave, just that he did. I don't know if maybe he gave off sketchy vibes or something. Yeah, I didn't either. I was like, okay, I like that you were making him leave. Yeah, good looking out. Yeah, yeah, good cousin. So one of Cheyenne's relatives said he thinks he saw Robinson at Cheyenne's home days before her disappearance. So he was over there frequently, it sounds like. Yeah, so that 10 days out and then again, too. So for the other set of remains, Fairfax County Police had found a missing poster for Stephanie on Route 1, but they didn't see a missing persons report for her in Fairfax, Alexandria, or Arlington. And that was because Stephanie was from Redding, California. So Fairfax County Police reached out to Redding and they confirmed that they had a missing persons report for her. The power of flyers then, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah, it really works. So like, I know I've said it, I've said it so many times, but in your area, there's probably a missing persons flyer that you can print and disperse and share online or do something because maybe the right person will see it. And then you can give a family closure if something like this were to happen. Exactly. So I find it strange that Reading Police didn't reach out to Fairfax County because when Stephanie was reported missing, she was reported missing in Reading because that's where she was from and that's where her family was. But she went missing from where she was in Fairfax and D.C. Her family knew that she went there to sightsee and that she didn't come home. Yeah, that seems like there's a missing link there. Yeah, like they should have reached out. So law enforcement flew to California to retrieve a DNA sample for Stephanie. And they were able to confirm that her DNA matched the second set of remains. Horrible. So in January, Fairfax County Police Department learned of another woman woman who had been found in a shopping cart in D.C. in early September. And that's Sonia Champ, who we talked about before. The spokeswoman for the D.C. office to the medical examiner said an autopsy was performed on September 7th, but the cause of death was undetermined. Sources have told the media that digital evidence suggests that Robinson was in the vicinity of where Sonia's remains were found. So reminds me of Alex Cox, right? Like that's how they found the kids. Yeah. And I mean, I also wonder, too, like you never know. Someone takes a picture. Someone checks in somewhere. Right. So long enforcement reviewed receipts from the Moon Inn and found that Robinson had stayed there on five separate occasions, including the day Cheyenne went missing. Sounds like a really stupid criminal. Yeah, I mean, he's not very bright. He's not really covering anything up. But I mean, like, let's also talk about the fact that, like, he started in August and they didn't catch him till November. And he didn't seem like he was out there being a criminal mastermind, right? Yeah, he's an idiot. Like, we're talking surveillance footage, stuff on his cell phone, like... Things where you're like, oh my gosh, I felt like, I don't know, my personal NSA agent should have like raised a flag, right? I'm doing something sketch. Yeah, that makes me sad that it took that long to catch him. Imagine if he was trying to be secretive. Exactly. Yes. So in December, law enforcement agencies began trying to piece together where Robinson had been to see if they could figure out if there were other victims that matched his M.O. As of January 10th, law enforcement had looked through missing person cases from 35 different police departments to see if they could be linked to Robinson. The Fairfax County Police have reached out to New York authorities and the FBI for more information on Robinson and to help create a victimology. Heck yeah. Also, let's talk about the fact that that's some quick work. That's some quick collaboration being like, we're out of our depth. Please help. And it's okay to ask for help sometimes, right? I feel like in some of the cases that we've been reviewing lately where it's like, duh, call the FBI, ask for help. You need more stuff. They're like, We'll wait till it gets a lot worse and then we might do it. Maybe we would rather make this a harder case on everyone. Yeah, let's make the family do more. So we've talked about victimology a little bit, but we thought that it might help if we really dove into it a bit more because it is actually really interesting and it makes me want to learn more about it. Yeah. Victimology is a study that looks at how a perpetrator would interact with victims and which victims he targets. In our outline, in all caps and parentheses, I put male pronouns are purposeful because I feel like oftentimes we say the perpetrator and we use gender neutral terms that I feel like that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. What is it? I forget the, the actual statistics, but it is incredibly crazy high. Yeah. So this helps them determine if there's particular variables they should keep an eye out for in missing persons cases. 
So exactly what is victimology? In short, it is the study of crime victims. And it's a subset of criminology, which obviously is the study of crime, which is normally discussed more frequently, right? Like you you hear them talking about the serial killer all the time. Yeah. And like you mentioned, like, but the victims' names are important and what they were and what they were doing and their families should be the big, bold top of every article. And when talking about victimology, I don't know in your head if you get his voice, but I think of Reed from Criminal Minds. Every damn time. Talking about it. I just like think of him in his little suit. His little sweater vest. It's a white man in his 30s. <laughs> yeah. It always is. And to go off topic and to like raise us up a little bit because this is so sad and horrible. Lindsay sent me an article the other day that Criminal Minds is coming back. But without Reed. But without Reed. So I'm like, I, I was excited for a moment and then I read it like thoroughly and I'm like, hmm, there has to be a way. There has to be a way. So in honor of Criminal Minds, I even looked up on the Criminal Minds wiki the definition. And I want to say that at the beginning of the show, they kind of defined all of the terms that they use from then on out. And they had the definition in criminal minds terms on there. And they said the study of a victim or all victims in order to discover clues and information in regard to an offender's opportunity and selection process. So why this particular victim at this particular time? So in honor of criminal minds coming back, we had to include it. So someone who studies victimology examines the psychological effects of crimes on the following, the victims, the interactions between the victims and the criminal justice system, and the relationships between victims and offenders. Now, what I thought was interesting is that there's different theories under criminology. And I went through, there's a couple universities that had them like, if you want to go into victimology, here's what you need to know. And it was just really interesting. So the first theory is the victim precipitation theory. And it suggests that the characteristics of the victim is the cause for the crime. This means that the criminal could single out a victim because the victim is of a certain ethnicity, sexual orientation, race, gender, or gender identity. So it's not only hate crimes, but it also includes occupations and the person's activities. So an example outside of a hate crime could be someone targeting another employee because they got a promotion that they felt like they deserved, which if you remember our Black Friday episode, when Carl Carter saw Ashley as her direct competition for promotion, and that's why she victimized her. Yeah, that's where my mind went right away. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense in like workplace targets. It's normally something stupid and it's not worth anything. But yeah, and it doesn't only mean murder, too. It could mean like other crimes. Yeah. So another theory is the lifestyle theory, and it suggests that a certain person may become the victim of a crime because their lifestyle and their choices expose them to more risky situations. So think of it as like the easy victim or the easy target. You hear that a lot. It's not fair for living your life, but... I also think in addition to easy victim and easy target, we hear people who have a quote unquote high risk lifestyle is how they're described, where it seems a little bit like blaming the victim. It totally does. Yeah. And a lot of the time, the, the unfortunate part is when they say that immediately, like, oh, they lived a high risk lifestyle. It's almost like a reason to dismiss that it happened to them in a lot of these cases. And it's really not. They're still humans. Absolutely. Generally, I feel like as soon as someone says high risk lifestyle, it's like more often than not associated with a we don't know what happened. We didn't investigate further. 
Yeah. We thought this was as a result of their profession or an overdose or an accident caused by them being not sober in that moment. Yeah. And almost like they were deserving of it. Right. Like, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. You get that vibe off of it. It's not fair. It's silly. But anyways, so there are a couple other examples. I wanted to shy away from only that, but things like leaving your door unlocked even. And and they were saying even like petty crimes like theft. If you leave your car door unlocked, you're more frequently going to get robbed because it's easy. That makes me think of when people describe um, a victim of opportunity or a victim of like circumstance. This would be like a victim of circumstance then. So it has nothing to do with who you are, just where you are in that moment. Yeah, this is part of it. But then on the other hand, it does include someone maybe being under the influence of drugs or alcohol and where that lifestyle may take that person to frequently. Again, it's not fair to just be like, well, they did it. They went there. They deserve all of the help and all of the respect. Respect, yeah, as any other one. And care and consideration and delicacy of their case. Yeah, for sure. But this did remind me of how Samuel Little chose his victims in a way because he looked for this. And then there's one other, I think they called them modern theories because there's a lot of them. But another one is the deviant place theory. And this one sort of overlaps a bit with the lifestyle theory. And it states that an individual is more likely to become the victim of a crime when exposed to dangerous areas. Or the more often a person goes into like a bad neighborhood where violent crimes are super common, the greater the risk of victimization. Like the more they frequent a place, the more likely it'll happen to them. This also has some overlap with socioeconomic approaches to victimization. So like low income households are more likely to be located in or near dangerous areas of town. I think of like the Cecil Hotel we just brought up, right? Like that's not a good part of town. They just changed it into it. For sure. And people from socioeconomic backgrounds are less capable of moving away from these dangerous areas, which is not fair. But it's like what our society does to everyone, right? America. Yeah. I think these are all interesting. I'm interested to see if this is something that is ever released, whether it's in trial or someone leaks it. But I'd be interested to see what the resulting victimology is here because we have decades in between ages for some of these victims, different races. They look very different, just like the way some of them like dress or style, like some of them wear a lot of makeup, some of them wear no makeup. Yeah. It also seems like, for example, so far I haven't seen anything that suggests that Stephanie knew Robinson, communicated with Robinson. I wonder if she just happened to be in the wrong place while he was there. So it's it's, it's definitely interesting to think about the victimology. Right. The first time I started reading about it, I instantly went, oh, the online dating sites, right? Like the Plenty of Fish or what's that other horrible? Tagged. Yeah, tagged. So I went there, but then for some of the women, though, it didn't really specify that they were also on those apps or sites. Exactly. So police are looking into unsolved murders to see if there are any that have similar variables, but they're also looking for survivors, which I think is really important to note because oftentimes we think like, oh, this person only did X, Y, Z. But from what I understand, this is a pretty like frequent occurrence of him murdering women. Yeah. And I would imagine that he ramped up into this. We talked about one of the survivors of Texas Killing Field, too. She's the reason why they caught one of the killers. Yeah, exactly. I would imagine that when we're talking about these similar variables, this would be an instance where they would be utilizing VICAP to see if there are other murders where the killer used a shopping cart to assist with the disposal of remains 
I would also imagine that some of these terrible details of the trauma these women faced, if it was unique, would be added as well. It's been a moment since we talked about VICAP, but just as a reminder, it's the Violent Crime Apprehension Program. And that's the name of the team that's in charge of a repository slash database where the data is collected. And so they collect specific data on certain crimes. And those crimes are homicides, missing persons, unidentified people who are found dead, sexual assaults, and other violent crimes. You'll notice a pattern there that it's generally violent crimes or crimes where there could be violence, like a missing person. The types of info they collect are crime scene descriptions, like here they would talk about the shopping cart, victim and other descriptive data, names and other personal identifying information, lab reports, criminal history reports, court records, and even news media references. I think that's an interesting one. And crime scene photos and statements. So as of 2015, this is a horrifying statistic, only 1% of police departments entered information into VICAP. I think we've said that before where we're like, shouldn't everyone do that? Isn't it a great tool? Yeah, we have talked about this before and that there are some jurisdictions that have passed statutes saying that they have to do this. I didn't see any statute in Virginia, but there is another state program that's called VibeCap, which makes it very confusing. Yeah. And VICAP was also created at Quantico in Virginia. So it would be a little bit ridiculous if they weren't using it there. And again, Robinson has lived in multiple locations like Maryland, Virginia, and New York, which is why Amanda mentioned that they had reached out to New York law enforcement. So he's lived there over the past few years. So authorities are still like, they're again, they're trying to piece through where was he and when, similar to what they did in Samuel Little's case, where that's how they tied him to these women because they were like, where were you? Exactly. And where were we finding women? Yeah, makes sense. So let's go into what's going on with Robinson now. So in a December filing, Robinson's attorney, Louis Nagy, said the Fairfax County and Harrisburg City Police Department have shown themselves to be untrustworthy with sensitive information and willing to deliberately and maliciously create a narrative to create a media firestorm. Big Mark means vibes, right? That's all I thought of. Yeah. I was like, there always must be one, right? It's their fault. They're making him into a bad guy. Yeah, it's clearly. I mean, just the fact that we don't know how these women died, like how much of a firestorm can it be if they're just saying like we found them? When they're found in plastic containers. Yeah. He already did it to himself. Mm -hmm. Nagy is asking the court for a gag order so that police cannot use the name shopping cart killer or label him a serial killer or talk about the case without court approval. Oof. Like, I understand. I think labeling him is stupid and it's not okay because it's just clickbait. Yeah, it's not helping anything. Yeah, agreed. But I'm sorry he's killed multiple people. Serial killer might be a just name. Yeah. Daggy argues that it's going to be difficult to get an impartial jury because of the media coverage. I think that they'll still be able to get an impartial jury. He's no Lori Vallow. Agreed. And I think that what's interesting, too, is like law enforcement was like, we are looking forward for our case to be presented. That means they have good stuff. I mean, also surveillance footage, my guy. You're fucked. Like, right. And good. You should be. Right. Disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And we're just a couple months in to law enforcement really looking at other cases that could be tied to this. So as terrible as it sounds, I think that we're going to hear more. I think so, too. I think we're going to hear a lot more victims. Yeah. Is this even the first place that he started murdering people? I wonder, maybe there's another empty lot somewhere. 
Exactly. And I'll tell you this, too. So I went to law school in Florida and one of my friends moved up from Florida to D.C. And when she moved to D.C., she sold her car. She was like, fuck it, buy a car. Because a lot of people in D.C. don't have cars. They use the metro. They use public. It makes sense. Transportation. So it's very common. Yeah. So out of necessity, he might be using shopping carts. But if he's living in another place where, you know, it's more common to have a car and it's more accessible and you don't have to, like, pay to store your car someplace and it's not a nightmare, he may have had a completely different M.O. And that's what I find terrifying is that, like, unless he has something particularly for shopping carts, which I doubt he does, that concerns me that I feel like we're going to have a hard time tying cases to him unless he has a particularly horrific way of inflicting pain against people. And I, I don't want that to be the case. Like, I hope it's not. Yeah. That I find that really scary. I know there's a reason that we don't have a lot of details. And it's probably it's a very good thing, I'm guessing, just so it's not everywhere. But I'm also like when the trial starts and we hear what he actually did, I'm very nervous because just the little bits of information we have is really awful. It's one of the worst cases, honestly. Yeah. And so for other cases that we follow, we try to pull court docs as often as we can. We talk about it all the time. You know, you know. But for this, I went to see if there was any documents available online and I didn't see any. It's just kind of like basic information. Yeah. There's supposed to be a hearing in May and that's the first time I think we're going to be doing much. Yeah. So as more information is released, we'll update the True Crime Digest. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, this is the information that's out there right now. Yeah. This is a rough one. It's a really heavy one. It is. I'm hoping that these women get justice. They deserve it. Yeah. And then it isn't painstakingly long and that their character isn't brought into it. Because I feel like anytime you're like, well, a woman met a man in a motel, people are going to start just running their mouths. And I don't want to hear it. Like, I want to hear zero about how they did anything. No, they're the victim. Yeah, exactly. So this was an all business episode, I feel like. Well, happy Friday, I guess. This is a heavier episode. We don't know how to end this because how do you end this in some quippy way? I don't know. Yeah, the only exciting part is uh, Criminal Minds coming back. That was our highlight. (laughs) Yay. Yeah, that is our highlight. But like no read. So it's kind of like a middle excitement highlight. Yeah. Well, and with all this, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at TrueCreepsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrueCreepsPod, and on Twitter at TrueCreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. <laughs>